I don't even know how I thought to go. I must have missed a period. And I went to Planned Parenthood and they told me I had that I was pregnant and also had two STDs. And I remember really clearly walking out of that office and thinking to myself, my life is over. This is, I'm, I'm completely, I'm a ruined person. My life is over and there's just no reason not to step off the curb and just get hit by a truck right now. And I, I walked up to the sidewalk as a busy street and I had my toes over the curb and I was thinking, okay, this is it. There's no reason to go on. And in that moment, something happened where I turned around and thought, actually, what if I don't do that? What if I change my whole life right now? Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Phoebe Pilaro. Welcome, Phoebe. Hi, Ronit. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your trip to be here with me to talk a little bit about how our paths kind of connect and how they're so different as well. I really appreciate it. Um, I was especially interested in talking with you for this month of episodes because of the subject of my book and the experience of growing up in a cult for, you know, a cult being around my childhood, whereas you had a commune type of early start. And I'm always intrigued by that because it's something I know a lot about from watching movies and docuseries and reading books, but I don't get the opportunity to talk to people who've experienced any kind of commune-like or ashram-like life very much. So to me, it's like a very interesting inside look. So I really appreciate your willingness to share what you do remember. So you can you talk a little bit about your you know, your earliest memories uh, and where you grew up and the name of where you were and all that? It's sometimes, you know, I do, I usually just say it was a commune because that's the easiest way to describe it. Although I don't know if it was officially a commune. It was more like an unofficial gathering of people. Um, It was kind of deep in the Redwood Forest in Ben Lomond, which is in the Santa Cruz Mountains on a road called Alba Road. And, and everyone just called it 1000 Alba Road, the address. That was the name of the commune. <laughs> and um, there was one main house and something like four or five other dwellings. It, it used to be a chicken farm. And the owner of the property just allowed all these people to live there for minimal rent. I don't know. I guess he just liked the idea. Um, it was kind of a a gathering of intellectuals and artists and musicians. Um, The person who lived in the main house, his name was Gregory Bateson, and he was a philosopher, and he wrote a book called An Ecology of Mind. And um, interestingly, he dated Margaret Mead for a little while. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Like not uh, not concurrently? Was it before... While after. I was there, oh yeah, my goodness! When I was a little kid, and um, 
I don't really have a memory of it, but my mom tells me that Margaret Mead was still, you know, practicing and studying anthropology. And she, Gregory's daughter, Nora Bateson, um, she did a little film of, of which I've never been able to find, but of me and her playing with clay to study how children play, I guess. Wow. That's yeah. really interesting. <laughs> and, and also I can see how you'd want to find that film. Yeah, I've never seen it. Um, yeah. I don't even know if it exists anymore. But, um, and yeah, so so was he, this is intriguing because I know, I, fe- I feel like I'm right in saying when we talked previously, my impression was that this is definitely not a guru situation. This is no. definitely not a coercive thinking type of situation. So no. was this guy Gregory Bates at all their figurehead or at, did he at all extol anything? Or was he just like, hey, man, uh, this is a good place. Let's just hang here. Like, what was the you amount know, of leadership? Yeah, I don't I don't think he was exactly a leader, but I think everyone admired him as a wise person. But I think the, I don't know if it was his idea or just a, the general consensus of the group that lived there was kind of the main ideology was to make up society rules on our own instead of, instead of following any rules. What if you just made them up as you go, like whatever seems, feels right. You know, for instance, if it was really warm, why should anyone wear clothes? Or if there's a lot of food grown in the garden, why don't we all share it and have a party? Uh, And, you know, peacocks are really pretty. So let's have peacocks around and, (laughs) you know, (laughs) yeah. Um, And um, there was, I think there was, I'm sure there was, um, there was different, you know, relationships that would break up and get together with other people on the commune and you know it was a little bit of the whole free love thing because I mean I was born in 1971 on the commune and I think it started just a year or two before that or maybe a few years I'm not sure. Do you know how many people roughly were there just like just an idea of size? Um, I'm gonna guess like it was pretty small, like about 10 to 12 adults, probably, uh-huh. and almost that many kids. Yeah. So so you were not alone. You had children around you. Yes. I was never alone. I was my mom and dad's only child, but I felt like I had brothers and sisters because us kids were, there were never any babysitters or anything like that. The older kids just kind of took care of the younger kids, and I remember wandering around the property, just kind of in a group of kids. And, and so I have really quite kind of idyllic, happy memories of that first five years of being little, you know, um, I mean, a lot of bad things could have happened, but they didn't because there was no, there was very little adult supervision or anything like that. Well, I'm I'm curious about that too because so my my experience in talking with the people that I have talked to uh, who've who've grown up in these situations or had parents who were involved, 
there has been a sense in those in those few conversations I've had that the kids were not the priority and that mm-hmm. the children were sort of there, but they weren't to be catered to or to be celebrated necessarily. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, because for me, you know, I, I can see the the positives of that kind of wandering around in a pack of children and feeling free and how beautiful and I wonder, did you ever have a sense at all that there was more parental supervision missing or that you, I mean, of course you were young and a lot of kids don't want that anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember one time waking up in the middle of the night, what I felt like was in the middle of the night, it was probably just midnight or something when I was probably four mm. and realizing nobody was in my house. Oh, and wow. I remember, you know, running up the path to the main house and sure enough, there everybody was. Yeah. um, but you know, that, you know, scared alone feeling, but I think they're moving forward in my life. This, this kind of upbringing that even though we left the commune, I think when I was six after my mom and dad broke up when I was five and they, and then my mom and I lived there with another mom, single mom and her two kids for another year while I was in kindergarten. But even though this, you know, it was very, it was quite unstable, you know, and I, I think it was definitely what I always call benign neglect, you know, like <laughs> you're saying, like it was, um, we, us kids were on our own and, and there's good things that come of that, like independence and a sense of freedom and, um, you know, being able to do whatever you want and, and feeling and and kind of developing a sense of like kind of having to do for yourself, you know, get food if you're hungry or, you know, put clothes on if you're cold or whatever, because no one was making sure of that. Um, so I think there's good things that come of it. And then there's also, you know, the instability, I think, later in my life. You know, probably I, I ended up feeling like that insecurity in um, in like when I was say six to 10, I was just trying to figure out who I was. And I, I really wanted to be, I really craved stability mm-hmm. and craved security. And I really wanted to be quote unquote normal. And, mm. you know, I wanted to go to church and join the Girl Scouts and, yeah. you know, have more of a conventional experience yeah, and like have a regular house with a fence around it. And, you know, (laughs) right. Well, so can we, let let me get a sense here then. So your parents, you know, when they were on the commune, was their relationship, I know you were so young, but from talking to your parents and from your memories, were your parents pretty good relationship wise when they were on the commune or was it volatile? No, it was very volatile. I would say my mom was the emotional, emotionally stable one. My and always has been. And my dad, he, um, luckily, I don't think he'll ever hear this interview, but he was definitely unstable. He's, um, he's still alive and we're still in contact and everything, but, but he, he's always has been, he's never been to a doctor or diagnosed or anything, but if I were a doctor, I would say he had, you know, bipolar he was just super duper manic and very, very intense. He was just always very intensely, either intensely happy or intensely angry. And, and I think it verged on violent almost just not, not, 
physical, but just he was he would get so angry and um and I think um actually the the friends of my mom's on the commune kind of helped her realize that he was just too ah. crazy and like sort of helped her extricate mm-hmm. herself and and pretty much kicked him out. Basically. Ah, I see. They kind of when realized he didn't five. he shouldn't be there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And he was just causing too many problems. How old was your mom when she had you? She was 26. Okay. So like, that's yeah. actually not that young back then. That's, yeah. that's like pretty yeah. conservative. Yeah. So then, okay. So I know you've said to me before that you, you moved around a lot. So after yeah. leaving the commune, did you, did you land mostly with your mom or did you ever get to live with your father? I mostly lived with my mom, mm-hmm. but he convinced her that I was the only thing keeping him alive. Mm. And so, because he was so intense about everything. I was going to say, not dramatic at all. (laughs) (laughs) And so he convinced her to have me stay with him every weekend. Um, And a lot of the times he didn't even have a house. And so, you know, we hitchhiked our, you know, we had slept in the car before. And at one time he lived in a, he had, um, was, he, he was a, he never wanted to be a, builder of you know carpenter but that was his fallback job because he always thought of himself as an intellectual and a photographer and he always was going to write a book which he never did but um he yeah at one point he he was gonna you know do a remodel on the old movie theater in boulder creek which is even deeper in the redwood forest and so we just lived like on the dirt floor under the movie theater. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So (laughs) here's the thing, like, okay, so I think it's important for context. Uh, These days that would be considered, you know, dangerous or putting a child in an unsafe place or cause for protective services to maybe take a look. So back then, like just recently in my adulthood, I, I went through a whole, I realized that I was really mad at my mom for allowing that and putting me in that situation, you know? And so I had to work through that. Yes, you exactly uh, said what I was thinking or wondering about because it's, I don't know, I feel like we can get used to the way we grow up and it can be fine for us and the different levels of, you know, uh, pleasure or displeasure with what we experience and what we accept. But then as we get older, we can understand it differently, especially in context with the way we would raise our own children. And I am wondering about, like, it sounds to me, and tell me if this is right, like your father really loved you, but he just wasn't very fit. He loved me too much. Mm -hmm. Like I was the light of his life, he would tell me. And, you know, he would tell me the only thing, reason I'm alive is because of you. you Well, that's a lot for a kid. Yeah. So it was, it was always pressure, you know, and, um, a burden, kind of. Do you remember not wanting to go see him? Well, I remember feeling obligated or, you know, I believed that I was, you know, helping keep him happy and that it was my job. So I think I, throughout my childhood, I I, I felt like this responsibility that I, you know, I had to take care of my dad. And so even though I might not have wanted to, I knew it was my, you know, my duty kind of. Yeah. And so, and then your feelings to your mom, for your mom, and I know that they have changed over the years and you have this perspective that you just touched on, but 
back then, if you can kind of dive deep into how you were feeling as a kid. You know, when I was a kid, I just loved my mom so much. And I felt like her and I were a team kind of since I was the only daughter. And she was always working really hard to provide me, even though even though it was so unstable and we moved around probably every six months to a year, we hardly stayed in the same place. And we hardly had any money because she hadn't graduated from, well, she hadn't went to college. Um, so she was working as a type setting or like a typist back then. Um, and so just, you know, not much money or anything, but no one we knew have had any money either. So it didn't feel like we were especially poor. Actually, we felt, I felt kind of normal. So I didn't, I, I just felt like we were a team. Um, she would always try to make our little places pretty, you know, with little flowers or put up curtains or, you know, make everything nice. Everything we got was secondhand and mm-hmm. from garage sales and all that. But stuff. it sounds like you didn't feel deprivation or lacking. It was fine no. for you too. No, I, I really, um, I felt like she always, she also made our lives really fun and social. So we weren't ever alone. Um, and she was kind of an upbeat, happy person pretty much all the time. Mm. And do you so, feel like that was authentic? Yeah. Actually authentic. That's amazing. And she still yeah. is that way. She's just a very cheerful, positive person. She doesn't really sink into depression ever. You know, my her friends sometimes say, Well, Janet, she'd be happy in a mud puddle, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, so so let me let me go a little bit further then and ask you because I, I always have to ask these these questions. Like I can't leave it alone and just take it at face value. Did you feel listened to? Did she listen to you and understand and see you for what was happening to you? You know, I think, and that's where like at the time I, I had no resentment for her at all. And, you know, from that, like say six till teenage years, um, that period, um, I didn't have any resentment, but this, the whole benign neglect thing kept that was that was a, a really a theme my whole childhood through high school and high schools where it became more of a problem. I mean, I felt like she was my best friend and we could talk about anything. And but she, you know, she wasn't a, she was always working full time. And um, so I was on my own a lot and she was quite social and had boyfriends. So I'd be on my own then, too. Um but not always on my own since we lived with other people. So I'd always be with, I was never alone really, you know. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you were feeling, you've realized over the last little while that, that you had some anger toward her. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. I think that leads to the high school years or the teenage years, because when, you know, the whole benign neglect started to not work as well, you know how they say, teenagers need even more attention yeah, than yes. toddlers, um, <laughs> which I think is true now that I have my own teenagers. So since we were on this kind of friendship term terms in our relationship, she didn't have any authority. And so when I, when I got to be 14, I really, I wanted to push the boundaries just like most teenagers do. And when I pushed the boundaries, there wasn't really a boundary. And so I pushed even farther and pushed even farther and pushed even farther and um, 
and there just wasn't any boundary. I wouldn't, you know, she didn't have any way of kind of controlling me or saying you can't do that or there, that that relationship wasn't set up. Did she way. have that impulse though? Was there too much? Was there such a yeah, thing as too much for her? Exactly. I think I think she kind of got blindsided because mm-hmm. everything was going so smoothly. We got along all the time. Everything mm-hmm. was fine. And I just don't think she, you know, this teenage hormones just kind of hit like a ton of bricks and you know, she, it was like too late to fix it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, so I really, well, plus it sounds like, w- would you not have really listened to her at that point? Oh no. Yeah. I mean, I was, I turned into a little hellion. I was, I was going to say like everything backfired. Like you yeah. think that if yeah. you were given such loose boundaries and such this like free form childhood, you would not necessarily rebel. Yeah, no, it, I, I did anyways. <laughs> and she was just blindsided by it. Oh. Um, and I think she tried, you know, you're, you're grounded. But I'd be like, oh, <laughs> F you, mom. <laughs> I don't care what you say. I'm doing whatever I want, as always. Do, do you think that you were also <laughs> hoping for more attention from her? If you were like really go in there, do, do you know what you wanted? Maybe, yeah. I probably, in a typical teenage way, wanted, yeah, wanted more support, more can't do that. And you must not do this and you have to do this. And, you know, our relationship just wasn't set up that way. So, so I, and based on kind of my whole upbringing, I didn't understand any societal rules really. Mm -hmm. And this is like the early eighties now, right? Early eighties or so so mid eighties. I was in high school from like 85 to 89. So I just started really going nuts. You know, I started drinking a lot, smoking a lot of pot, um, you know, mostly just those two things, luckily. Um, but I was exposed to other harder drugs. Luckily, I had some self-preservation that I didn't do the harder ones. Um, but a couple people in my circle did. Um, what kind of uh, relationship did you have toward sex and, you know, dating and what, where were you on that and on yeah, your own boundaries? I mean, that I started early at 14 and, um, my relationship with it was, you know, I, my memory was just, is just that my mom said, well, you know, sex is really nice and it, it feels good. And so, you know, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and she would try to warn me, like, you know, remember, that's that's all boys want to do. So you have to, you know, watch out for that. Did she talk about protection or give you condoms or? No. So I was just really, you know, on my own out there. You know, I would stay out all night. Even I remember the first time I stayed out all night. I was in ninth grade. I was 14. Wow. And my mom was really mad and I had to write her an apology letter. But then that seal was kind of broken and I, she just couldn't do anything about it. You know, hmm. um, she just had no power over me mm-hmm. or authority, I guess. And so, which is interesting too, because, it, you know, what you described earlier was that you two were almost friends. You know, I think for a long time when she was raising yeah. you, she made you like a peer. And then you have yeah. your father on that side when you see him telling him, telling you that you're the only thing that keeps him alive. And so it's like a really kind of like skewed and different type of relationship. But it's yeah. interesting to me. It's like neither one of them are, were typical, you know, 
yeah. conventional parents. But it no. also kind of shows me, it's it's intriguing to me too, that even though your mom and you had this sort of bond, whether or not it was healthy or good to be, you know, so fused that way, it wasn't enough to make you feel like you had to listen to her. Like there was something you were pushing up against. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, all I can chuck it up to is regular teenage hormones. <laughs> yeah. So then, so then you get pregnant, right? Yep. And can you talk a little bit about what, yes. what you decided to do and what happened? So, con- so after throughout freshman year, I, you know, really was with a lot of, I, I, I just didn't, I didn't have any reason not to, I thought, mm-hmm. I thought, well, if they want to do it and I want to do it, who says I'm not, why am I supposed to say no? Right. I mean, why is it up to the girl? I just, couldn't understand. I'm like, well, you, if you want to, and I want to, then why am I, you know, why am I supposed to stop it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It didn't make sense <laughs> to me. And so, so I carried on and in spring of sophomore year, when I'm 15 and a half, um, I, me and a girlfriend, we just decided we didn't want to go to school anymore. And this was all stupid and, and pointless. And so we quit. We just walked out. And we thought, we're, let's just not go to school anymore. And so <laughs> we left. I mean, this is, you know, 15-year-old yeah. girl thinking. And no plan at all. I think we went to McDonald's and had coffee or something. Uh-huh. And um, That's and pretty then, rebellious. <laughs> yeah. Woohoo. Um, anyway, we were out of school for about a week. And then we thought, well, this kind of sucks and it's boring. We're just like by ourselves. And so we decided to makeup. Um, we, we went to the other side of town, found a house for an address and made up a story that we were stepsisters and filled out all the forms to enroll ourselves in the public school across town. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so it worked and we got in and our parents didn't even know that we (laughs) had not only dropped out of school, but started another one. Oh my goodness. Because back then it was all like notes and, you know, yeah. they never even talked to the parents. Yeah. So yeah. We, we brought in a note signed by your mom, you know. You're right. Um, and uh, so I, we finished the year there. Um, and that summer, I I started dating this older guy. He was 20 and I was 15 mm-hmm. and he was a high school dropout. And, um, <laughs> of course, <laughs> um, he also stole cars and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, um, so I thought he was really cool. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we started dating and, you know, in the meantime, I was still dating other people too. And well, we call it dating now. I was just sleeping with other people, but anyways, and then that summer, my mom finally did have a boundary with me that summer which I admire her for. Finally, she said, you know what, Phoebe, I am not giving you any more money for your beer drinking and partying and for, you know, buying your clothes or anything, no more money. You can live here, but that's it. And so, um, so she finally put her foot down and I, I got a job. That's part of this epiphany I had was I worked all summer that summer in a, like a warehouse, you know, making five fifty an hour. And I, I really hated it with passion. I mean, I just hated standing there all day and it was actually putting together flower bouquets, but kind of in a a line, you know, just all day monotonous. And so that was part of it. But then at the end of the summer, 
just about to turn 16 and enter junior year in high school, I must have, I don't even know how I thought to go. I must have missed a period. And I went to Planned Parenthood and they told me I had, that I was pregnant and also had two STDs. And I remember really clearly walking out of that office and thinking to myself, my life is over. This is, I'm, I'm completely, I'm a ruined person. My life is over and there's just no reason not to step up the curb and just get hit by a truck right now. And I, I walked up to the sidewalk. It was a busy street. And I had my toes over the curb and I was thinking, okay, this is it. There's no reason to go on. And in that moment, something happened where I turned around and thought, actually, what if I don't do that? What if I change my whole life right now? I don't, I don't have to do that life or that death. <laughs> I could, I could actually, I don't even know if there were thoughts in my mind, but as I turned and started walking home, instead of stepping off the curb, I just started thinking like, okay, you can get through this, just take care of it. You know, they said they would help me at, at Planned Parenthood and which they did, which I'll always be grateful for because, you know, I, I didn't, even though my mom and we, well, my mom and I weren't on great terms at that point, you know, they didn't make me tell my mom, they didn't make me tell anyone and I didn't have any money at all. I mean, I had a few dollars from my job, but, um, I, I had to go stand in line all day one day and get the proper, you know, funding. And then, you know, went and had all the, well, the procedures yeah. to do the abortion and the, and, you know, help deal with everything. And so. Yeah. Did um, you tell, did you tell any of the guys or. And this was like the matter of like probably the first two or three weeks of, of junior year in high school. Um, I did tell my boyfriend and he was, you know, he came with me to the clinic and, you know, helped take care of me. And, you know, my mom just thought I was sick that day or something. Mm. Did you eventually tell your mom? I did. I told her probably not even too long afterwards, but maybe probably, I probably told her when I was in college at some point. Um, And she was well, she was really sad that I hadn't, that I had gone through that by myself and hadn't told her. Did your relationship change? Yeah. Well, I think, I think doing it on my own also gave me some of my own self-worth and self-esteem too. Just because I remember thinking when you're looking back at your life, when you're in your twenties and thinking how kind of unstable my upbringing was, I think like the people who are lucky enough to have like kind of a stable home and mom and a mm-hmm. dad and there's not very many of those people I don't think but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it gives you a sense of security and I think the sense of security does give you some just some inner self-esteem that I feel like in my life I had to build it myself you know I, I wasn't given that from my upbringing so back to the walk home from the clinic on that walk home I started to plan how I was going to change my life. And, and part of it was, you know, I didn't want to be this, you know, 
pregnant at 16 person, you know, dating losers and being a waitress the rest of my life or whatever. So I, and I had that summer job, which was, you know, minimum wage, which I hated and it was monotonous and boring. I thought, I don't want to have jobs like that. I, I don't want that to be my life. You know, I want a different life. And so on that walk home, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to college as if it hadn't even occurred to me before. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, and here's an idea. <laughs> I was like, you know what, what do people do if they want to change their life? I know they get educated. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that first couple of weeks of school, I walked into the, to the counselor's office and I said, you know what, Mrs. Whatever her name was, I want to go to college. Um, what do I have to do? And she literally looked at me and laughed. Oh. She chuckled because she just shook her head and she's like, oh, honey, it's too late for you. Uh, you know, I don't, I just don't think that's an option. You know, wow, I mean, because your grades and stuff and yeah, I mean, I had yeah. flunked out of, um, I'd probably done okay in ninth grade and then flunked out of 10th grade. And so I was pretty behind and, you know, I just, I think she really didn't think I could do it. And so, and so I went out of the office kind of crestfallen, but then I went back. I was like, no, I mean it. There's got to be a way. And so I went back the next day and said, no, I'm serious. I really, really want to go to college. If you tell me, I will do everything you say. And, you know, she said, well, you have to get straight A's, of course, and you have to do a sport. You have to join a club. You have to, you know, start some something, either get a job or have an organization or something that you're part of. And, you know, you have to do all these things. And, and I said, okay, I'm gonna do it. And so I did. Wow. And so did your, did your relationship with your mom change in those last two years of high school at all? Yes. You know, all of a sudden she, we weren't at odds as much. She was proud of me again. And yeah, definitely, definitely got better. And and then, you know, she was, it was like a miracle that I got into college and went to UC Santa Barbara and, and she would brag to her friends, can you believe she did it and everything, so. But it sounds like, I mean, I feel like it had to come from you, this, this rock, I mean, kind of this low point that made you see yes. what your life would be if you didn't change it. And you kind of had that early on. I mean, yeah, a, a lot of people don't experience that. So yeah. Young, yeah. You I know? mean, it's, it's kind of like what I was saying before. Like, I feel like all of life's huge lessons I've had to learn by myself. Um, right. Through my own life experience and through my own trial and error. In the last few minutes, I'm wondering if you can circle back and talk a little bit about, you know, we'll have to, I, I hate to say it, Phoebe, we'll have to, you know, this was amazing. So I want to kind of just talk about your your own parenting style and, you know, where you are with your father and your mother now. My own parenting style, I think, is a mixture of benign neglect and <laughs> um, <laughs> and stability because... There are a lot of positives of the benign neglect, like I was talking about. I think my, I have two boys now, they're almost 14 and 16, and I have not been, I've been the opposite of a helicopter parent. 
you know, let's just say that. And me and their dad, who passed away about four years ago, he and I both agreed on that, that we wanted to teach them independence and to do things for themselves. And we expected more of them, not less. And we taught them to make their own breakfast and get themselves dressed and just independence things. And I think that's worked out pretty well because I've also, at the same time, tried to provide them with a more stable upbringing. You know, we lived in the same house until a few years ago and then we've moved. So they've, they've only lived in two houses. Mm-hmm. Whereas by the time I was 18, I think I lived in 18 different houses. Hmm. So I'm trying to um, give them that, but also um, just a sense of stability in my relationships and, you know, and you know, we all have dinner, we have family dinner together every single night and they can count on me making breakfast for them in the morning and, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Like you're the mom. Yeah. Oh, even though I said they made their own breakfast, I meant like on the weekends and stuff. But. Yeah. No, I didn't know. <laughs> don't worry. I don't feel like I caught you in a lie. And then, and then where are you these days with your, your father and uh, your mother? Well, my mom, I actually, I went to this, you know, week-long therapy program about it because I realized I had all this anger about my life and that that it was affecting my 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 current life and I didn't I I realized I didn't want to have the past keep you know affecting my present and so I did I think I did that like two and a half years ago or something so kind of recently and that was really life changing for me because I realized that I was even more angry at my mom than I thought I was. And after really working through it at the end of that week, what I really just felt was forgiveness, you know, that almost every parent is, and I worked with my dad too in that week also, that almost every parent is doing the absolute best they can. And the problem is it's usually not good enough, (laughs) but, (laughs) but, you know, as, children of these parents, you know, my mom was doing her absolute best and there were pros and cons, you know, good things that happened out of that and bad things. And, you know, I I just kind of let it all go. And my dad, you know, actually he was doing the best he could and he's still quite unstable and still goes into fits of anger and he's still hard to be around. I'm still the only person in his life. He's been unable to hold a single relationship like a single one. I'm the only person in his life. And he's 78 years old now. And I support him entirely financially, even um, because he can't, he's never been able to hold a job. Um, So he would be, he would be homeless if, if I didn't help him. Do you live near him or do you, do you visit him? He lives two and a half hours away in Boise. Mm -hmm. And so with my dad, I've reached a forgiveness with him too. And I just, I just, and for a long time, I've just tried to focus on the the positive parts about him. You know, he is super intelligent and very unique in the way he thinks. And so it's, it's always interesting to talk to him. And I just, you know, I just can't abandon someone like that. So I take care of him. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about forgiveness. Um, 
I'm curious what you think about that because I, you know, I get asked that question a lot in terms of my upbringing. And I think, what do you think is an ingredient, you know, to finding forgiveness with your parents? And I think probably about anyone, it's compassion, like understanding deeply that each human being is trying their best. Um, most people aren't trying to hurt someone or trying to make the world a worse place. You know, I think it's like a genuine kind of belief in the general goodness of most people, you know? I I feel that way too. I think that's really, there's there's this compassion and understanding. It's like an appreciation for what other people have gone through that yeah. helps me too. When I was thinking about what, kind of the main thing to come out of all this in my life right now is just that you can't take for granted. Like no one, no one is given anything. Like you have to make your own life, even, you know, being happy. It's like, I have to kind of fight to be happy every day because, because you could go to the dark side. You could let yourself. um, And I do, you know, I get, I get really down and, despairing sometimes. I always, I know that I'm the only one who can pull myself out of that. I'm the only one that can help myself just Mm -hmm. like everybody is, you know. When you say you can get real down sometimes and despairing, uh, I know that that's different for everyone and you, you don't have to explore this with me, but what is it, what, what happens in general? What is that about? Do you think? Well, you know, I think, it's, I do have my dad's genes in me as well as my mom's. And so I always think that's his side. But I think it's like when, when I, when I lose faith in humanity, mm-hmm. that's when I despair. For I wondered too, if it has to do with like, you know how sometimes there's a, there's like a place in all of us, I feel that we go to when we feel like we're not good enough or we're there's a younger part of us that Mm -hmm. we can be frozen in and stuck in Mm -hmm. the part of us that didn't know how to get out of our situation. And I wondered if it was partially that old person. Yes. And I think like I was saying, fighting for happiness, it's like you kind of have to continually not let your past hard experiences or bad things that happened to you keep affecting your current life. And yeah. somehow you have to like put that aside and take care of that little person instead of having that little person rule you. <laughs> yeah, it's work. It's work. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, is there a place that listeners can find you? I have well, I do pottery, you know. Mm. So I have a I have a pottery Instagram and I have just a personal Instagram. My pottery one is just called Pip Pottery, P I P Pottery, all one word. Mm-hmm. And my Instagram is just Phoebe Polaro. Thank you so much for being my guest. I'm really glad we got to talk about all this and, and dig into your story. And I, it's amazing how far you've come. And I just, it's, it's a real gift to be able to learn about you. Thank you, Ronit. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. 
You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.